This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to another Doomsday Watch War Bulletin. We want to start off by saying thank you for tuning in. Listeners like you are the bedrock of our work. If you're finding these war bulletins useful, you can support us by backing us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, help us shape future episodes, and get exclusive merchandise, all from just £3 a month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the links in the show notes. Today, I'm joined by Asli Aydin Tasbash, who's a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations and an expert on Turkey, particularly its foreign and security policies. Asli, welcome. Hi, Arthur. Good to be here. So, Asli, perhaps the most intriguing and difficult to understand country in the whole perspective of Russia's war in Ukraine is Turkey. Turkey seems to be on every side of this argument. It has supplied its drones to the Ukrainian military. We've all seen the footage of, of these uh, remarkable bits of kit doing their work. But Turkey at the same time is being very difficult on the question of Sweden and Finland joining NATO. And Turkey remains a complex and intriguing player in this conflict. So I really wanted to try to get an understanding of what Turkey's objectives are. And perhaps at the start of this, we should talk about the personality of its president, President Erdogan, and his relationship with President Putin. Well, Arthur, Turkey is a very interesting country right now because there is a sense, I think, uh, in the country, but also within Erdogan's inner circle, that it is on the cusp of something bigger, that the country is poised, destined to be a great power in an age of great power competition. Now, many middle powers tend to try to project power above their weight in some sense and punch above their weight. But in the case of Turkey, clearly Ukraine war has provided a geopolitical leverage. Here I am sitting on the Bosphorus, you know, a few months ago, I watched Russian ships as they went into the Black Sea, Russian Navy ships as they went into the Black Sea, and then Turkey closed off the Bosphorus. It's been playing both sides of the equation, but doing so without making a 
much of a fuss about it. In other words, Turkish citizens or government officials do not think there's anything wrong in having an equivocal stance on the Ukraine issue. This neutrality is really prized in Turkey, and it's seen as a ticket to a great power status. There is a big narrative that the government, a a far-right government in a coalition with nationalists, but they've they've built a narrative on a rising Turkey, ascendant Turkey, surrounded by friends and enemies, but also allies that are in fact trying to prevent its rise. So that's the overarching narrative. And in that, this Ukraine war and relations with Russia fit perfectly in. And uh, the relationship with Russia is, of course, very unusual because here is Turkey, a NATO ally. It's been a member of NATO since 1952, used to be a big proponent of NATO enlargement, taken part in numerous NATO operations and so on and so forth. But this is a very different Turkey from the Turkey of the 90s, Mm. no longer attached to the transatlantic alliance In the same way, it's a country that wants to define its own course, uh, believes it's destined to be a hegemon in its own region at least. And I think the ruling elite do have a certain amount of disdain for the liberal norms and rules-based engagements, the lecturing from Europe. So in many ways, Erdogan's relationship with Putin is a symbol of that decoupling from the transatlantic community. Turkey does not want to be a Russian vassal. It doesn't want to enter a new bloc with Russia. It wants to be a power on its own right with a foot in each camp. Yeah. And that's exactly what they've been doing in the Ukraine war, selling armed drones to Ukraine and stepping up some engagement with NATO, some, but not all. But on the other hand, not going with the Western sanctions, uh, sort of keeping an economic relationship with Uh, Russia, but also continued engagement with Russia, keeping lines of communication open with Kremlin. For example, in Turkey, you never hear officials talk about atrocities committed by Russian forces in Ukraine or Russian Russian aggression on Ukraine. That sentence has never been uttered by Turkish officials. So that, I think, is coming as as news to many in Europe who uh, haven't noticed that the the non-Western narrative on the Ukraine war is very different. And clearly, Turkey is one, one of these countries like India, like South Africa, that see it, not so much, that see this conflict, not so much in moral terms, but as a, as, as a war between two powers and best to remain impartial in this fight. We are used to more of a binary set up. You're either an ally or a foe. They do not see this as a big unifying moment for the West and for the transatlantic community and would rather sort of stay on the sidelines and try to maximize their uh, geopolitical and economic gains. And, And there's no qualms about this among Turkish officials, that they believe this is the right policy. Yeah, I guess what what makes this interesting, I mean, you draw the analogy with India and South Africa, and certainly, and in fact, we've, you know, we've covered this on on this earlier episodes of this podcast, there are countries for whom the NATO perspective on this conflict does not necessarily hold sway. And it is very much seen as a 
a much more kind of finely balanced issue. But where, in a way, you're describing Turkey as a neutral player, and yet Turkey is a member of NATO. And so I suppose the real question is, does Turkey really feel that NATO membership means anything anymore? Or is it just one of a series of kind of geopolitical levers that it can pull? I think Turkey is looking after its interests and its security interests and wanting to be recognized as an independent and rising power. And to the extent that NATO can help that, they would go along with NATO, but obviously also, as we're seeing, decoupling from NATO on other issues. It's very clear that they want to increasingly uh, divorce themselves from a values-based arrangement or, or, or at least discourse on that. And I think that there's no uh, desire to leave NATO, but there is every desire to push in and put Turkey's demands on the table. There's also a sense of overconfidence in Turkey, I should note, because of the Ukraine war, because it has a homegrown defense industry now that is doing fairly well. The, the armed drones are a symbol of that. They're getting a lot of publicity around the world with the Ukraine war. So there is a sense in the country that whether this is right or wrong, and we can debate this, but there's a sense among the ruling elite that Turkey may have problems, but it is destined to be a big player. Europe needs Turkey. Americans need Turkey for demographic reasons, for military reasons, for geopolitical reasons, or because of the real estate that it's sitting on. Yeah. It's an essential um, ally for the West. Yeah. So one of the moments where perhaps people who haven't been following Turkey very closely suddenly realised that they were ploughing a fairly neutral line was with the issue of Sweden and Finland joining the alliance. There was, I think, perhaps a failure by lots of NATO members to take seriously Turkey's objections and to assume that Turkey might be almost in a kind of pro forma way saying we haven't agreed to this. But it seems uh, that actually Turkey is prepared to block this for quite a long time, doesn't it? Just now, before joining you, I listened to an hour-long interview by uh, Turkey's um, foreign minister, who seemed to suggest, I think, that Turkey was in no hurry to reach a compromise on the Sweden-Finland issue. He talked about Greece uh, vetoing North Macedonia for 11 years just because, he said, in quotes, just because they didn't like the name. So um, I think that they're signaling that this could drag on. Turkey had its own grievances about NATO partners supporting Syrian Kurds, including, of course, United States, including some other European allies, and including Sweden. Mm. But it hadn't come out with a well-defined policy position until Erdogan spoke two, three weeks ago. So that came as a news to many people. And then Turkey grabbed onto this as an opportunity to air its grievances with allies on supporting Syrian Kurds and, uh, and extract some concessions. And I think they're going to stick to that. I don't think there will be an easy resolution to this conflict. The Western allies have been, uh, you know, particularly Europeans, have been somewhat oblivious to the fact that there is an entirely new 
tone and narrative in this country since the failed coup attempt of 2016, which you know Turkish government blames on uh, United States and, and and sort of believes the West would have wanted it to succeed. So that's really created a rift and has residual effects. And the anti-Western narrative is very dominant here from the start of the Ukraine war, you know, on television, commentators, experts have largely been blaming NATO. Now, your readers might be shocked and surprised because that's not what we hear elsewhere in, in the West or in NATO countries. But I think the fact that Turkey is going off on this tangent and no one's pay atten- paid any attention seems like a big omission to me. Yeah. Uh, Turkey is also going to use this to see if they can create some sort of an acquiescence, to be very honest with you, uh, from European allies on possible cross-border operations into Syria yeah. to fight what they define as Kurdish terrorists, which are, of course, the U.S.-backed, U.S.-affiliated Syrian Kurdish group. So there is a huge issue at hand, and that's been that the groups that have been aligned with uh, NATO partners are also the groups that Turkey is fighting and considers terrorists because uh, of their affiliation with the PKK, the Kurdish insurgents in Turkey uh, that Turkey has been fighting since the 80s. So, you know, there is no easy way out of this. It was helpful when Turkey had a peace process with the PKK, but that broke down in 2015. And since then, it's been a constant source of tension between Washington and Turkey and Europeans and Turkey. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Coming back to Sweden and Finland, uh, there's this talk about concessions, but what is the concession likely to be? Because it seems that the Swedes are not about to hand over um, people who've been living in their country for for several years. So what do you think, in realistic terms, the price will be? A few things. You know, there's such a divergence now between Turkey's norms and its inward-looking national security mindset and European values. So people that Turkey considers as terrorists can be considered as dissidents or civil society uh, members by European countries. Uh, You know, Turkey has sentenced, obviously, both legitimately uh, sentenced terrorists, people who've uh, taken part or supported violent acts, but also went after journalists and uh, and critics and uh, dissidents and so on. So that is what makes this equation very difficult. And in Sweden, you do have overall sympathy for the Kurdish cause, 
Obviously, Sweden cannot kick out political dissidents unless it is proven that they are involved with uh, violence or terrorism or supportive of it or doing fundraising for it. So that is a difficult issue. And it's not clear to me who these people that Turkey is demanding are. So extraditions are very difficult. What is easier, perhaps, is lifting the export bans on defense industry that Sweden, along with a number of European countries, have imposed uh, since Turkey's 2019 incursion into Syria. Yeah. And so that's a clear demand that uh, Turkey is putting on the table. But I just listened Turkish foreign minister who's also said we want them to change their anti-terrorism laws. Hmm. And so that's another tricky issue because, um, you know, no European Union can possibly have the anti-terrorism laws that Turkey has, which lands people in jail for sharing stuff on social media sometimes. So this is going to drag on, I think. I was more optimistic in the beginning, and there was more hope in the beginning if perhaps you know Americans had gotten involved or Europeans had taken a quicker response. But I think as time drags on, Turkey is aware that its cards are quite strong because mm. of the Ukraine war. Yeah. So... Let's talk a bit more about Turkey in the Ukraine war. As we've already said, they supplied their armed drones to the Ukrainian side. Uh, but of course, they have not put extensive sanctions against Russia. And if I'm not mistaken, there's going to be a meeting between uh, President Erdogan and President Putin in the near future. Well, uh, Erdogan spoke to Putin, so he, that line of communication has been open, and it does sound like there will be a new attempt at talks between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, apparently, Erdogan spoke to Zelensky yesterday, and he's open to it. It's not clear what Putin's line will be, whether or not he feels he has sufficiently achieved his military targets, military or political targets in Ukraine and is open to ceasefire or not. But I think that uh, that line of communication will be important because uh, in the end, uh, it's not just ceasefire, but also things like food security that is being talked about. I understand that Turkey, along with the United Nations, is trying to establish a contact group in Istanbul, including with representatives from Ukraine and Russia, to discuss a safe corridor for boats carrying grains and food supplies from Ukrainian port Odessa and Mariupol, to be uh, precise. So yeah. that's a big deal. If Turkey does end up providing safe corridor of food, I think that does uh, reap the benefits of having this neutral position. There's also going to be another attempt at what Turkey is going to try to do is try to build on this food corridor business to see if they could uh, move the two sides into some sort of a ceasefire space. There's no uh, real enthusiasm for ceasefire negotiations or talks in the West right now because yeah. I think many NATO countries feel this is an opportunity to to sort of punish Russia, penalize them for this aggression, but also uh, weaken Russia. But I think the Turks are more concerned that this is not going to lead to that. 
quite the opposite. It's going to be far more destructive than people realize because the economic consequences are not going to be felt just on Russia. So I think this is going to be a very interesting conversation about who is really paying the price for sanctions on Russia. With the economic impact of the conflict, and particularly for any country which imports food, and that that includes Turkey, you can see why this is a cause for concern. But in terms of the, the territorial integrity, does Turkey not see any risk of allowing Putin to benefit from a, an aggressive military action where it, Turkey itself, of course, is in a complicated, you know, contested geographic space and, and, you know, it has difficult relationships with some of its neighbours. So why is it that Turkey doesn't seem to be so keen to kind of enforce, you know, a retreat on Russia, given that risk to itself? Well, I think Turkey is a revisionist power, much like Russia, both former empires that feel they deserve a bigger place under the sun. Turkey has deployed troops in Libya and in Syria and in Iraq and has established bases in the Horn of Africa, in the Gulf region, so on. And in in other words, um, clearly... Both feel that they deserve a bigger zone of influence in their own region. Uh, That has to do with a number of things about the way the World War I ended, the the sort of reshuffling in the global order, the emergence of a multipolar order, perhaps uh, the sense that we're entering a period in which US supremacy may decline. But in the end, Turkey and Russia. Uh, though they are on different sides of the conflict. Uh, For example, in Syria and Libya, they are on different sides of the conflict. Yet, they've established this mechanism to agree to disagree, carving out zones of influence for each other. In fact, engaging in proxy warfare, but sitting around the same table. This is very difficult for us to understand because... We're more used to thinking in binary terms about about multinational organizations, about international relations, about value-based liberal systems, so on and so forth. You're either an ally, in which case you're always a reliable ally, or you're a a rival. Uh, Clearly, Turkey and Russia do not think of international relations in binary terms. Both of these countries are extremely transactional. They're very cynical and certainly have a disdain for the sort of liberal world order and value-based engagements. And their attitude at this point is, you know, I will fight with you on these issues, work with you on others, and that's fine. And I think that's super interesting, not just in terms of what these two countries do, but in terms of a way of thinking that feels more, perhaps more 19th century, but a way of thinking that we've forgotten about yeah. in terms of world affairs. And, it, and it's fascinating, this point about a sort of non-binary uh, foreign and strategic policies, which I think for a, a lot of us sort of living in Western Europe is, is a framework that, that we find quite difficult. Um, but I suppose as a final question for you, Ashley, 
How much of this is about the personality of one man, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who of course has dominated Turkish politics um, in recent years, uh, but still remains somebody who could, you know, lose an election, could be out of power. Would Turkey continue on this path with a different government or is this a, a, a very much a personal agenda? This is a very important question because people do not really pay attention to what's happening inside the country and therefore ignore the inside out aspect of Turkish foreign policy, much driven as in a lot of other countries, but much driven also by domestic needs. Most people think of Erdogan uh, outside of Turkey as a forever president, but the unique feature of Turkish politics is that despite the country's authoritarian lurch, it is still a very competitive landscape where elections have mattered. So a lot of these issues that we're talking about is also driven by Erdogan's need to look like a global player, a player on world stage, rallying up nationalism, particularly when it comes to cross-border operations. Uh, it helps divide up the opposition bloc because there is a united bloc against Erdogan right now made up of six parties of different ideological strains and, and externally supported by Turkey's Kurds. So many of these issues are also, have, also cut across Turkey's domestic politics. And to be very honest with you, it's not easy to see what will happen in Turkey's elections. Yes, he's been the dominant character in Turkish politics for the past 20 years, but is now facing the most vulnerable moment in his political career with declining votes and an economic downturn. So it's going to be very, very interesting to watch how Turkey behaves over this next year and what how it relates to its own, Erdogan's own uh, domestic needs. But one thing, uh, one point about Erdogan in terms of his own worldview and beliefs, I think he does really think that it is his calling, his mission in life, to restore some sort of a great power status to Turkey. He does think Turkey should have influence and is destined to have influence beyond its borders. And clearly, he's also very suspicious of Turkey's traditional allies, whether it's US, Europe, and so on. And that people have to pay more attention to because it is part of the Turkish calculus. Well, I think that exhortation that we pay more attention to Turkey's internal politics to help us understand its global actions is, is an important message and a great place to conclude this interview. Asli Aydin Tasbash, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us this really powerful insight into what is a very complicated country. Thank you, Arthur. Pleasure to be here. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. 
You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.